0: This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Good morning and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 120, entitled The Mission of the Logos in the Prologue. As always, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is your podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of God of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Biblical Unitarian podcast. My name is Dustin Smith as always I will be your host. Hopefully you're all staying safe and in good spirits during these times of uneasiness and quarantine and hopefully you've been enjoying the contents of our podcast. This episode aims to continue working through the prologue of the Gospel of John focusing specifically on words and phrases that appear difficult and confusing to interpreters. The tendency with teachers and readers alike is to zero in on the first three verses and verse 14. So the other verses of the prologue, which, by the way, is 18 verses long, these verses are often marginalized. So this week we will examine how those in the world respond to the Logos. The Logos, which we know became flesh as Jesus Christ. It will be important for us to correctly discern how the Logos functions in regard to the person of Jesus during his ministry. Also, we will explore how Jewish wisdom traditions, especially God's personified wisdom, help inform our reading of the Logos and its functions within the prologue. What does the prologue of John mean when it talks about the Logos in the world? And what does it mean to believe in his name? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the Logos interacting with creation. So we're going to read overall today John chapter 1 verses 9 through 13. But in this section, just want to focus on verses 9 through 11. So let's start here. John chapter 1 verse 9. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. That's John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. So what we have here, and it's very important that we keep this straight in our mind as we read through the prologue of John, is the continued personification of the Logos. Remember in verse 1, in the beginning was the Logos, in the beginning was the Word. And then we saw in John 1, 3, all things were made through him, the him there being the personified Logos. God's word personified. And so when we get down here to John 1.10, he was in the world, the subject here is still the Logos. And the Logos is still consistently being personified. This Logos is not a person, a conscious divine being alongside God. This is the personification that we see in Jewish wisdom traditions, to where God's word is personified almost as a male, and it's akin to God's wisdom being personified. God's wisdom is personified as a female, but God's attributes, God's creative speech, his word, and God's wise interaction with the world, God's wisdom, these attributes are personified, but personifications are not persons. So it's important here when we see that he was in the world, this is the Logos. We do need to talk about what it means for the Logos to be in the world. It's interesting that the Logos that was in the world continues to be identified as such. It continues to be that word, the word of God, it still functions as that creative speech of God of course, in the world, speaking the good news, and those who are to receive that good news are interacting with this Logos, the Logos that becomes flesh. So we've got lots of things on the table for us to consider. Let's just kind of go phrase by phrase and line by line and make a few comments. We just finished in our previous episode talking about John the Baptist who is bearing witness to the light. The Logos, God's word, is the one that said, let there be light. And the Logos functions in the Gospel of John as the light of the world. So the light coming into the world, which is a way of talking about birth, enlightens every man. And the Logos is in the world, as we see in verse 10. And then we have this important reminder that the world was made through him. In verse 10, the world was made through him. Remember, him is the personification of the Logos. And if the world was made through him, that implies that the Creator is not the Logos, the Creator is God. God is the Creator. And God created the world through his creative and powerful speech. So we have a reminder there of creation. The same world that the embodied Logos was in was the world that was created by God speaking creation into existence with his powerful word. John 1.10, which indicates that the world was made through him, made through the Logos, is the very same thing that is said in John 1.3, where all things were made through God's word. It's important to keep in mind that God still functions as the creator, but God creates through his personified word, through his personified speech. It's another reminder that the world in which we are talking about here is the world that was created. This is not some sort of new creation that is being described here in verse 10. In verse 10, with the creation motifs, draws us back to what was already said about creation in John 1.3. But unfortunately, the world did not know him. And this actually creates A very interesting theme that we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John is that the people of God don't actually accept God's primary agent. They don't accept Jesus. So we already have this conflict, this drama, this tension that is being introduced here. The world through which the Logos created doesn't even recognize him. And then we have the theme repeated in verse 11. He came to his own, the Logos, came to his own. The Logos that was embodied ultimately in the human Jesus came to his own people, to the Jewish people, and those who were his own did not receive him. By not receiving the embodied Logos, which is Jesus, they did not accept him, they did not believe in his message, and ultimately, they have responded inappropriately to God's agent. Now, the depiction of the Logos draws yet again on Jewish wisdom tradition, which spoke of wisdom coming to earth in order to dwell with men. And so it's important that we continue to situate the prologue's depiction Of God's personified word in the conceptual matrix of thought where God's personified attributes God's word and God's wisdom are portrayed as interacting with God's creation and we have a variety of passages that indicate that God's wisdom came to the Jewish people and the Jewish people responded to God's wisdom in various ways and remember that by the time of the writing of the fourth gospel, God's personified wisdom was basically understood as a close synonym for God's personified word. We've demonstrated this extensively in verses one through three of the prologue. Let's look at a couple passages that help us situate these verses in their context. So again, we are thinking about what it means for the Logos to come to the world, the Logos that God used to create this world, and the world not knowing the Logos, the world not receiving the Logos. So first passage we'll look at uh, comes out of Sirach chapter 24. Remember the book of Sirach uh, written around the year 180 BC. So it's been in existence for quite a while. And it was considered influential by many learned Jewish readers. Let's look at this passage. Sirach 24, I'm going to start in verse 7. Among all these I sought a resting place. This is Lady Wisdom speaking in the first person. In whose territory should I abide? Then the creator of all things gave me a command. And my creator chose the place for my tent. He said, Make your dwelling in Jacob, and in Israel receive your inheritance. Before the ages in the beginning he created me, and for all the ages I shall not cease to be. In the holy tent I ministered before him, and so I was established in Zion. Thus, in the beloved city he gave me a resting place, and in Jerusalem was my domain. I took root in an honored people in the portion of the Lord, his heritage. That's Sirach chapter 24, verses 7 through 12. Now, what we see out of this passage is God's wisdom, which is personified as a female figure who was looking for a resting place. We see the Creator. Notice that wisdom is not the creator. The creator is someone distinct from wisdom. The creator commands his wisdom to go make a place for her tent. It's going to be very, very important when we get to John chapter 1, verse 14, in which the word became fleshed and pitched his tent among us. And we can see that the place that wisdom ultimately resided was among Jacob, was among Israel, was among the people of God, the Israelites. And you can see that he was placing wisdom in the holy tent, and wisdom was established in Zion, in the beloved city. This was the resting place. Wisdom was in Jerusalem. That was wisdom's domain. And we could see that the people interacted with wisdom. Wisdom there is clearly being understood as God's law, as the law of Moses, the Torah. And actually, Sirach chapter 24 will go on to indicate that wisdom as it came to earth was understood as God's law, God's commandments. But we can see there the parallel that is created with the word coming into the world and his own interacting with him. But it's interesting if you were to think about the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, there's a lot of evidence that Israel did not always act faithfully in regard to God's law, in regard to the law of Moses. In fact, one of the ongoing themes in the Old Testament is Israel's lack of faithfulness and how God continues to interact with these people despite their disobedience this is picked up in a different work called baruch often called first baruch to differentiate it from other works called baruch baruch is written probably in the second century bc and so let's see what baruch has to say about lady wisdom this is in baruch chapter three starting in verse 37 It says, afterward, she appeared on earth, she there being Lady Wisdom, she appeared on earth and lived with humankind. She is the book of the commandments of God, the law that endures forever. All who hold her fast will live, and those who forsake her will die. Turn, O Jacob, and take her. Walk towards the shining of her light. That is Baruch. Chapter 3, verses 37 through chapter 4, verse 2. Brook, like Sirach, is one of the works that are included in the Septuagint, in the early Greek collection of scriptures. It wasn't regarded as scripture as such, but it was read and considered influential to many early readers. And what we can see in this passage is something similar to what we saw in Sirach, which is that Lady Wisdom is personified and that when she comes to earth, she functions as God's law, as the book of the commandments. And we can see the summoning for people to listen to her, to respond to her, to accept her. Some people will accept her and they will live, and those who forsake her will die. It's interesting as I've tried to demonstrate about the word coming to the world, is that Lady Wisdom, when she comes to earth and is embodied in God's commandments, in God's law, she is still identified as that female figure. Those who hold her fast will live. Those who forsake her will die. She doesn't cease to be God's wisdom. She continues to be God's wisdom, now embodied in this new mode of being. But it's also interesting that Israel, or Jacob, is summoned to walk towards the shining of her light. When wisdom comes to the world and is embodied in God's law, she is regarded as God's light. What do we see back in our passage in John 1.9, we saw that the Logos is the light that enlightens every man. How does the Logos do this? The Logos comes to the world and invites his own to interact with him. Some people reject him and some people are going to accept him. So it's very interesting here how the depiction of the Logos coming to the world and interacting with Israel already had a foundation set with wisdom coming to the world in interacting with god's people let's look at a third passage from first enoch chapter 42 where it talks about israel interacting with wisdom when wisdom came to the world first enoch chapter 42 starting in verse 1 wisdom found no place where she might dwell then a dwelling place was assigned for her in the heavens Wisdom went forth to make her dwelling among the children of men and found no dwelling place. Wisdom returned to her place and took her seat among the angels. That's first Enoch chapter 42 verses 1 through 2. So again we have this theme of God's wisdom, which is personified as a female figure, looking for a place to dwell. Where is wisdom going to go? Where is wisdom going to make her her abode. It says that wisdom went forth and made her dwelling among the children of men, but she found no dwelling place. And it's very likely that this is drawing upon the fact that wisdom was understood as coming to make her abode in Israel, and she was understood as God's law, as God's commandments. You can see this in the book of Proverbs, but also we already demonstrated this from Sirach 24 and Baruch chapters 3 through 4. But it's clear that Israel or the children of men did not accept the law ultimately. Many of them rejected this. And so first Enoch indicates that wisdom returned to her place and took her seat among the angels. This indicates the theme of the rejection of God's messenger, of God's wisdom. And we see something very similar in our passage, in John 1.10 and John 1.11, where it says that the world did not know him. The world did not know God's Logos. And that the Logos came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So we have the rejection of the Logos that came into the world, which is paralleled with previous wisdom sayings, where wisdom came unto the world, and the world rejected wisdom. So this is highlighting something that I've really tried to emphasize in these latest episodes of the podcast, is that the depiction of God's personified logos in the prologue absolutely must be read in light of the parallels with God's wisdom in the Jewish wisdom tradition. That is so extremely important, and it is frustratingly absent from many interpretations of the prologue of John. And I regard that as just irresponsible. So let's move on. Let's look a couple verses further into the prologue. Our second point today is the logos and those who believe. So we saw in John 1.10 and John 11 that there was an initial rejection of the Logos, and of course those who are well aware of the narrative of the Gospel of John, the primary opponents of the Logos that was made flesh are described as the Jews, his own people. So let's look here a few verses later. John chapter 1, let's look in verses 12 through 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's John chapter 1, verses 12-13. through 13. And so now we see that some people did receive him, Who is this hymn? This hymn still is the Logos. But it's clear here that they are believing in his name. This is the ministry of Jesus that is being described here. There's really no reason to have any confusion about this. The prologue hasn't told us exactly how that's going to take place. We don't learn that until verse 14. But it is clear here that the receiving of the Logos specifically by those who believe in his name and those who become children of God by responding appropriately to this action, is involving the ministry of Jesus. No doubt. No question. But it's important here to realize that the subject is still the Logos. It is still God's personified speech that is now entering into the world functioning as the human Jesus. The human Jesus does not cease to be the Logos, and as we're going to demonstrate in next week's episode, where we look at John 1.14, when the Word becomes flesh, that fleshly human Jesus does not cease to be the Logos. In fact, the embodied Logos continues to function as God's speech, God's powerful speech, God's authoritative speech, God's revelatory speech. That's what Jesus goes around and does. He speaks the authoritative words of God. He continues the ministry of God's word. It's important, by the way, that we recognize the placement of these verses, verses 12 through 13, within the prologue. Because we have this massive prologue, and people tend to just start in verse 1 and just kind of read their way through all the way down to verse 18. So they think verse 1 is the beginning and verse 18 is the end. But passages in the Bible are sometimes arranged in a very important stylistic function. And the prologue of John has been identified by many commentators and specialists as being arranged specifically in what is called a chiasm now chiasms are where we take the arrangement of a passage and it's organized intentionally by its author this is not something that interpreters are recreating it's something that was organized by the author of the text himself where themes start off and they move in a direction to where there's a, a climax. And it's, it's called a chiasm because it comes from the Greek letter chi, modern Greek key, which is an x. And in an x, everything kind of moves towards a center point. And so the themes continue to move towards a center point. And it's difficult to demonstrate this over voice, over a podcast medium but I'll try to explain it as best that I can. So hopefully those that are listening in their car or listening as they're jogging can make sense as to what I'm trying to convey. And if they want to go back and review the notes, I'll leave a picture of this chiasm in the notes for people to examine for themselves. So the chiasm in the prologue of John goes from verse 1 all the way to verse 18. And so you have initial points, That start off very far, and ultimately they converge into a center point. And so the center point I'm going to point out to you is this middle section of John 1.12, which talks about how those who accept the Logos become children of God. That's very important. Okay, The center point is the becoming of the children of God. But the initial points just kind of arranging this chiasm, start in the first two verses where we have the word that was with God. We're just going to call that point A. And so that starts off the farthest points of the chiasm in verses 1 through 2. But we also have something similar in the parallel part down at the very end in verse 18 where we have the unique son that was with God. And so we have those two points that are mirroring each other. We have the word that was with God in verses one through two and the unique son that was with God in verse 18. So then it moves on closer to the center. So we have in verse three, we have creation through the world. And then we have in verse 17, we have grace and truth through the word. And so you can see it just kind of moves forward. Then we have the next parallel, which is receiving life in verses 4 through 5 and receiving grace in verse 16. Then we move to the next line of parallel. We have the description of John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8 and John the Baptist again in verse 15. The next line is the response to the embodiment of the word in verses 9 through 10 and the response to the embodiment of the word in verse 14. And then we have the next parallel, which is that he came to his own, his own being Israel in verse 11. And we have the response of his own, meaning the believers, in verse 13. So we're getting closer. Now we're down to verse 11 and verse 13. And then we have yet another parallel at the first part of verse 12 and the last part of verse 12. We have those at the beginning of verse 12 that accept the logos and then at the end of verse 12, those who believe the Logos. And then we have that center point, which is the middle part of John 1.12, which is the becoming of the children of God. Why am I even explaining this to listeners? What's the point? The point is that the prologue of the Gospel of John is intentionally arranged by its author in this chiastic framework. The functions of the chiasm Involve looking at a center point, which is meant to be the most important point of the entire structure. And so if there's a phrase or a verse or a passage within the prologue of John that is intentionally structured to be highlighted as such, then we need to acknowledge that as interpreters. And it seems, based on this chiastic rearrangement, that... The centered point, the highlighted point, the point of stress and emphasis is this phrase in John one twelve that talks about that he gave the right to become the children of God. It's the becoming of the children of God to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name. That is the center point of John's prologue. That is the most important point. The entire prologue is pointing people not towards the identity of of the Logos, not towards the God that sent the Logos, but towards how the people are supposed to respond to the Logos and what happens when they respond appropriately to the Logos. They receive the right, the authority even, to become God's children. It's the transformation of those that interact appropriately with this Logos that is the highlight of the prologue of John. And that is missed entirely by many interpreters when they reconstruct and teach John chapter 1. So it's very important that we recognize how verse 12 functions in the arrangement of the prologue, especially in its chiastic framework. Now let's talk about this. What does it mean to accept the Logos that gives people the right or the authority to become children of God? Because it says that those who believe in his name become the children of God. I'm very interested. What does it mean to believe in his name? We even have this theme of believing, which is extremely thematic. In the fourth gospel believing and having faith is a verb that appears more frequently in the Gospel of John than any other writing of the New Testament it is so thematic it is so emphasized in this book and we can see that it is now being introduced here in John 1:12. but what does it mean to believe in the name of Jesus In what sense is Jesus' name the object of belief? What does this mean? Does this mean to believe in the spelling of Jesus? Does it mean to believe in what Jesus says? Sometimes name refers to everything that the speaker stands for. And so we need to look at these, but I want to kind of look at how this phrase of the name as it becomes the object of belief is used in the fourth gospel. So let's look at a couple of these passages. Again, I'm trying to figure out what does it mean to believe in his name by looking at other places to where his name is the object of belief in the fourth gospel. Let's look in John 2 verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. That's John chapter 2, verse 23. So here we have the next occurrence of the name of Jesus as it is the object of belief. So here in John chapter 2, there are many of those Jewish people at the Passover feast, that are believing in Jesus' name by observing the signs that he was doing. Okay, So it seems that believing in his name involves acknowledging that the signs and the miracles that Jesus is performing are authentic and real and demonstrative that Jesus is operating as God's special agent. Let's move on and look at John three eighteen, where again the name is the object of belief. John three eighteen says, "He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the unique Son of God." That's John chapter three and verse eighteen. So there again we have the name of the Son of God is something that is supposed to be believed. Those who do believe it do not come into judgment. Those who do not believe it have already been judged. But we're seeing here that the name of the Son of God is something that is critically important to be believed. And then we get an extra hint as to what this means with Jesus' own words In John 17, verse 6, where Jesus says, I have manifested your name to men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. John 17, verse 6. It's interesting here that Jesus is praying, and he says that he has manifested God's name To men, and they have kept your word. It's interesting. I wonder if the explaining of this name to God's people is the same thing as the teaching of God's word, specifically the teaching of God's gospel, of the saving message, the good news. We can see this theme throughout the fourth gospel where Jesus speaks the word. He speaks the message that those who believe will receive eternal life. So it's very likely that believing in the name of Jesus is probably an all-encompassing statement of believing in everything that Jesus stands for. Believing in his ministry, believing in his words, believing in his gospel, believing in the validity of his miracles and signs that he performs and i think importantly believing that jesus is the sent one from god jesus is god's authorized agent i think that's what it means to believe in the name of jesus And the fourth gospel specifically the prologue of john is clear that those who did receive Jesus, were given the authority to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name. And verse 13 of John 1 says that these people are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. They have a new birth experience. How do those people receive this new birth experience, this born-again experience? Answer, they believe in the name of the Logos that became flesh. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the prologue is a theologically rich introduction to the fourth gospel. It focuses on God's word, the creative and powerful Logos that becomes flesh in the human Jesus. But the fourth gospel does not stop there. It insists that the proper response to the embodied Logos in the world is belief, trust, and obedience. We first noted that the Logos continues to function as the Logos when it is in the world. The Logos that is believed is clearly Jesus, as the word's embodiment. So it is important that we recognize that the fourth gospel continues to regard the Logos as functioning in and through the man Jesus. The Logos does not cease to be when it becomes flesh. Second, we noted that the portrayal of the Logos in the prologue operates in the contextual matrix of Jewish wisdom traditions, where Lady Wisdom was formally sent to earth in order to interact with God's people. Since God's personified wisdom and his personified word are close synonyms, the parallels with Jewish wisdom are critically important for reconstructing how the original readers of the prologue would have understood its contents, especially in regard to the Logos being in the world and being rejected by many of those in the world. Lastly, we examined the chiastic framework of the prologue and noted that those who believe in the name of the Logos that was made flesh are given the right to be children of God. The identity of the people of God, in other words, is defined by correctly responding to God's revelatory word, which is embodied in Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus' name, which broadly stands for all that he represents, but includes his saving gospel message, are included as members of God's family. This portrayal of belief in the prologue sets the bar high for readers of the fourth gospel who are summoned to listen carefully to what Jesus says and to respond faithfully. Join us next week as we continue to progress through the prologue of John and look at how the Logos becomes flesh please consider supporting the Biblical Unitarian Podcast as it aims to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You may check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much for listening to us. Again, hopefully you are remaining safe and in good spirits during these troubled times. My name is Dustin Smith. Thank you so much for listening and take care.